Dr. Alan Leica here, and I'd like to welcome you to How to Live a Fantastic Life Show, where we will be discussing the important aspects of your life. We hope to inspire you to live the best life you can. Get out of your comfort zone and explore the awesome world around you. Break through your barriers. Take inspired action. Use the difficulties in your life to achieve the best version of you. Ladies and gentlemen, today we have a very special guest, a wonderful lady by the name of Courtney Marcassoni. And she is a coach, a teacher, a health advocate with a master's degree in mind-body medicine. And she has spent the last 20 years passionately exploring the research gap that exists between medical science and what gifted sensitivity feels like. She provides an enlightenment in this field and it is a now emergent science uh, between the mind and the body. And I, I think this is really a, a, a big thing that's going to come out over the next 20, 30 years as we understand it more. Um, welcome, Courtney. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I feel very honored to be on your on your show. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, how did you get to where you're at? Illuminate me about your path, <laughs> because it's always interesting to find out how our guests got to where they are. It is such a, an interesting story. I mean, not just because it's it's um, intriguing. There's a lot of intrigue with it, um, you know, juicy parts of this timeline. Um, but the part that was, I think, the most um, earth shattering was through precognition. That's how it came about. Um, I had several precognitions in my 20s, early 20s and then mid-20s that just couldn't be denied. Um, you know, I call them intuitive experiences, um, but those were pretty earth-shattering for me. So in one experience, <clears throat> I basically saw in a dream state a future event happen, and it was almost exactly as it played out in my dream. And so that was the first, the first eye-opening experience, and then it started to happen more um, as I, I think as I delved into meditation practices and other practices, um, it just increased. So that's, that's how I got into the field of understanding sensitivity. Now, I, I believe one of those times was when you, uh, saw a candle burning down a house and, uh, you literally saw that and were able to prevent the fire from occurring. I didn't see the fire. Like in other instances, I had actually seen a future event and I knew to pay attention and that was a warning. It was a very clear precognition through lucid dream states. The fire was different in how it played out. It was more sensations, I would say sensations and feelings and a nagging and internal gut reaction. Um, the actual events that happened were I picked a friend of mine up at her apartment with her two kids and we were, you know, tasked with um, getting a bed from another friend's apartment complex and like breaking it down and moving it to our other friend's apartment because they were moving in together, the two friends were. And so when I picked my friend up, I never went into her apartment. She just got in my truck on the curb of 
of her apartment and we drove off. And from the time she got into the truck, I had a nagging. That's how I describe it. It was an internal nagging and I almost heard like a voice too. Um, just say, don't move the bed, don't move the bed. And so I didn't know that it was a fire. That's kind of um, the fascinating part about this. And then we went and followed through and went to get the bed until the voice for me and the kind of like this sickening nagging got so loud that I couldn't reject it and I couldn't ignore it. So I abandoned the trip to do the bed and beat a retreat back to her apartment. And that's when we found the three wick candle. And it had been burning the whole time. And there was a bamboo light shade that was above the candle that was actually smoking. And her whole second floor hallway in her building was filled with smoke. So if we wouldn't have gotten back, it would have burned down. But it's not like I saw the candle or saw the building burning down. It was all happening um, as things as the night was unfolding. And so that is even to me even more phenomenal because I didn't have a vision of it. I was just trusting my gut instincts to return, even though I had no real proof for the fact that we should return to her apartment. That's interesting. Now, you know, this, these experiences have been recorded for time memorial where people get an idea or a feel. Uh, sometimes my wife calls them women's intuition. She, mm -hmm. she, she gets a feeling that something's happening. She gets a feeling that something's happening with the kids and she'll call them and, and sure enough, something is happening. And, 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 you know, there is this other layer of knowing that people don't understand completely. Yes. Well, that was what was, that was what was, uh, like a life altering, I would say a life transforming moment after that fire. I had had other experiences that came mostly through dreams. This actually happened in the waking daylight hours. And I knew that somehow it was connected to those other precognitions through the dream states, which were very powerful and unforgettable. And so it was a life changing thing where I went, this is something uh, not well understood. I didn't understand it. I knew that when I was asking and kind of querying people in my profession, which was mental health, you know, counselors and social workers and doctors, they didn't know, they didn't have answers. And so I decided at that point to investigate it and research it. And that was 20 years ago. And so what I have discovered is it is a very natural, it is very real phenomenon. Um, some people experience it more often, but everybody is capable of experiencing it, especially in things like you're talking about with your wife, um, synchronicities or intuitions or feeling like you need to call or reach out to someone, a loved one. Very common. Those are very common things, much more than we would like to think they are. Yeah. Now, let's delve into the research here a little bit, because this is a, a hairy, scary area for a lot of people. And in, in other words, they don't want to admit that this exists. They so they they push it to the side and say, oh, yeah, right. Uh, you know, and, and they poo poo it. So let's go into some of the the science behind this stuff. Well, I'm just coming back from a research trip. I went to a conference called, um, it was down at Rice University in Houston, Texas. And um, it was like an odyssey, <laughs> you know, getting there um, because of all the storms and things that were happening at the time. But I'm just coming back from that. So I'm just full of all kinds of information that I'm still integrating from that trip. But one of the most profound things I think as a takeaway 
from all the studies that were talked about and the people that described their work and the panel presenters, one of the things that really lingers with me, which is kind of ironic because it's how I got into studying the field of, of uh, psychic phenomenon, intuition, empathy, um, it was Dr. Ed May's work. And he was a uh, program manager for the SRI research um, that was supported by the government that was done for basically 20 years, supported every year through funding through our government. And he talked about very clear studies that showed that psychic phenomenon exists. And this isn't in any kind of woo sense. It's very real science, statistically backed and proven and studied. And, um, and also the people that were in that program were there at Rice. And one of those individuals was Paul Smith. And so Paul Smith talked about a very um, real experience where he was tasked as a remote viewer, because it was a remote viewing program. He was in the army. He was tasked to basically do a routine fishing expedition is what he called it, which is basically to look in the horizon or the future of our reality and see what the army may need to be interested in or concerned about. So he saw in his remote viewing experiment, water, being in the ocean, this water rushing in like a, like a frigate styled, um, you know, a, a vehicle, and then also saw torpedoes at the same time. So he documents all of this in his remote viewing task. And then they say, okay, thank you very much. It goes into the bin with all the other remote viewing tasks for the day and just he doesn't hear anything else about it. And so his monitor was basically like, it's okay. We're all off sometimes. We all have bad days, good days. So he thinks that he's, it's a miss. Where 50 hours later, he reads in the front of a, uh, a major news outlet that there was a frigate that was, you know, uh, missed near missed by torpedoes or hit by torpedoes. And it was a huge international incident with the, um, with Iraq. So 50 hours before that incident, he had detailed it all out and it was all on the front page of the newspaper. So there's obviously support and evidence for this type of what Paul Smith called, uh, you know, disciplined clairvoyance in their program. And so there are streams and streams and streams of, of instances like this in that specific program in the U.S. government where psychics are tasked with finding targets or looking for for information and they're able to retrieve it. And so that's all there and that has been there for years. And the reason why I say it's ironic that I'm bringing this up is because when I had my own experience with preventing the fire in Seattle at the Brownstone, the first book that I found when I went out on my own personal mission and I said, I'm gonna try to understand this was Russell Targ's book. And Russell Targ's book at the time that I found in my used bookstore locally was Miracles of Mind. And Russell Targ was one of the progenitors of that program that Paul Smith was in. And so for me to listen to all of that information coming out at Rice University, they're trying to actually validate, validate these programs publicly. And it has been really a dogma in orthodoxy and science that these things don't exist. But it's refreshing to see that an, that a a academic institution like Rice University is validating it really publicly for the first time that all of these different fields and disciplines exist and they're supporting it. So I was um, 
really, like I said, refreshed and validated, not only as a person who's experienced this myself, but who has been doing the research and trying to cry out, <laughs> you know, to the public that this is very natural and very real and it's nothing to be afraid of. And it's actually helping us. I mean, it's helped I, our own I, government. I think there's a couple of reasons people are afraid. One is, first of all, it gives the belief that you can read people's minds or predict the future for somebody. And, and that is scary. I, I mean, you know, there's an old line, if I know where I'm going to die, I'm just never going to go there, you know, so therefore, I can I control my future, you know, but people are afraid of the future. They're afraid of knowing what's going to happen to them. They're afraid of that something nasty is going to happen. And therefore, by uh, seeing a view or a vision of that, they get afraid. Another reason is, you know, Hollywood and the pre and the shows that go on on this predetermination and the shows that have occurred on TV with it, you know, and, and yes, they're entertaining. And, and yes, they, they have some, some nice things about it. But people say, ah, that can't possibly be true. Because it's just on TV or in Hollywood. Well, I think two things that are important to keep in mind. Yes, it can be fear inducing. We don't want to have bad things happen to us. We don't want to see bad things happening. And when you start to look and do the research around people who are intuitive, they don't always have control over what they perceive. And so sometimes they do perceive things that are fear inducing, but it becomes an evolution. You evolve and you evolve as you learn to understand, especially for people who have clairvoyance, what those images mean. And it's your job as the receiver to intuit it and not only intuitive the content that's coming in, but how you receive that information as a receiver. So it's an evolution. So I just want to put, you know, anybody who's watching this, um, their fears at ease, because most of the time it's for a positive. It's for a positive. Sometimes it's a warning. Sometimes it's a life-saving warning. And those things to me are very positive. Um, can you pick up negative things? Yes. Yes, you can. And, and it's mostly relational between yourself and others. But once again, that's also an evolution and it's about development. And so it's about learning how to um, filter things out, the things that you want to perceive or not. And sometimes you can't help it, but it's about coping with it. So people who are sensitive, that's kind of their job to learn how they perceive information, what it means, and to not let the fear overshadow the ability um, and Hollywood. <clears throat> I think Hollywood is fascinated with people who are gifted because it's intriguing, right? Like I said in my own story, there's a lot of juicy, intriguing bits that are, you know, Hollywood worthy. Um, but even in my own experience of looking at the stories that I could pull out of that and make into a Hollywood movie, they were all life-saving. And so I always tell people that it's always been a positive thing for me. I think it depends on the person. And so it's very subjective, um, but I've embraced it now where I used to be very fear oriented about it, but that mostly was coming from the outside and from judgment of society versus I think my own internal, my own internal guidance system, which was basically saying, trust this, it's important. And that's huge. Now, you call these people the highly sensitive. Where did that concept come about? Well, I didn't have it originally. I mean, Elaine Aron wrote the book, you know, Highly Sensitive People in the 90s. And I was in um, college at the time when I read that book, but I didn't, um, I didn't associate myself with it. I was interested in it more as research at the time. 
But then throughout the years, over time, researching these various disciplines within a whole field of studies, I started to see that there were underpinnings in these individuals who I determined through my, you know, my thought process were gifted. They appeared to be gifted in different ways and some of it overlaps. Um, and so it was, it was a realization. It was a way of studying for something very, for a very long time and then making the connection. So I didn't have it originally. It wasn't like I started out with sensitivity. I knew of Dr. Aaron's book, but then probably 10, 15 years later, I started looking at trauma and making that connection that sensitivity was a big part of it, that they were, they were linked. So, so why do you think some people have the sensitivity? Is there something different about their brains or about their chemistry or about the way that they look at things? What, what is it that allows some people to be highly sensitive? Well, it's definitely genetic. It is a genetic inheritance and it is an organic brain function. So it's very physiological in nature. And so it doesn't have to be necessarily a parent. It could have been a grandparent, you know, and it gets passed down in the DNA. And so there is a very clear nature component. But then throughout development and early childhood development, there does seem to be an enhancement of it depending on your environment. So it's both nature and nurture, and it's very complex. Yeah, it's very complex because it's neurological, but it's also physiological and the way that your neurons work and sensory neurons work. And so it's, um, it's highly complex and it's not one or the other. So I like to tell people that it's both when they start looking at their own sensitivity and what the contributing factors are to their own gifts and why it works the way it does. And I can understand people not wanting to share this because, uh, people could say they're crazy. I mean, we had witch burnings in the United States at one time with the Salem witch situation. And people were tortured for being witches, for having skills and beliefs that others would not accept. And so I, I think this is in that realm. There is a lot of uh, belief systems that are challenging to really, um, you know, publication about these things and acceptance, open acceptance about them. I mean, I am seeing a huge groundswell right now of young people. I mean, as I said, I was on this trip um, going down to Rice University and I had a little diversion in Arkansas and um, I went into a local store that was, you know, basically like nature based. It wasn't one type of spirituality or another. And it was just flooded with young people with their parents because <laughs> they were wanting their parents to take them. And it, it had all assortments of things like um, meditation pillows and incense. And I mean, it would it would be seen classically as like a, a 70s style you know, hippie store, but yet there was something different about it. These young people were hungry for advancing and connecting with their own individual uh, intuition or what have you. And so I think that we're going to see some shattering of old belief systems, which is preventing this. And I think young people are going to be pushing, pushing either a resurgence of um, you know, uh, non-denominational types of spirituality, or even just through science, we're going to be seeing this pushing for studying what's real about it and pushing forward into the, into the horizon, new horizons. Okay. Now your 
book is called The Four Gifts of the Highly Sensitive. Now, now what are those four gifts? I mean, I know there's more, but for the, for the sake of the book, um, and not to be, you know, putting in too much minutia, I labeled them as intuition, empathy, vision, and expression. And the way that I define those are um, not necessarily classic in their de definitions, but I'm re kind of redefining them as a set of skill sets that sensitive people have that I'm calling gifted because they appear to be able to use those skill sets more often. So let's go through the first of those and go through your definition and how it applies to this. Well, the first one that I laid out was intuition and intuition is, it's well understood. It is a lightning fast, um, cognitive ability between the subconscious and the conscious mind or the unconscious and the conscious mind. And these individuals receive answers and information, which is correct information. And that's kind of how intuition is defined classically. And, um, and they don't know how or why this information comes about. And sometimes it's when they are problem solving and they're very, very really cogitating on answers to solutions. And sometimes it just comes out of nowhere, but then the question comes later. So intuition is thought of as a lightning fast ability to get answers without knowing how or why you're getting them. The and second one, I, uh, I, let's just stop there for a minute. Okay. As I said, my wife seems to have a great deal of intuition and she seems to pull it out. And it's interesting how that comes out. And I, and she just brings it out of nowhere and it just is right there, right then. And sometimes, you know, it, it comes, like I said, about when you're, you're not thinking about a question, which I think is one of the phenomenal things about intuition, but then the question comes, you know, and it's interesting, I hadn't ever thought about this before, but when I was at Rice University and I was talking to the remote viewers and Ed May, you know, the program manager, he told me that what's really interesting about remote viewers is they were getting the answers for the targets while they were like getting in their car coming into the, you know, to SRI. It wasn't always happening while they're sitting in the chair with the monitor, you know, and they're asking them to describe the target. They're getting it while they're pumping gas in the morning. And so that's the interesting thing about intuition is it's, it's non-ordinary. Um, we don't know if it's, um, we know it's a veridical, so it is beyond you know, your typical reasoning and beyond typical everyday cognition, uh, but they don't know why, not yet anyway. So intuition falls in that whole range of getting information. Sure. Okay, let's go on to the second one now. Well, what's the second one on your list? Empathy. And empathy is an ability to resonate with one, uh, one another, with someone else. And it's called emotional resonance because it's a first person distinction where you're feeling someone else's feelings on a first person perspective. So you're feeling someone else's feelings within your own mind, mind and body, and you're resonating with it. So that's the clinical version. <laughs> the non-clinical version is we feel other people's feelings. And the more, the more gifted you are in your empathic resonance, you might not be aware of that distinction between yourself and others. So that's where the sticky wicket comes in, where you might be picking up on other people's feelings, but you don't know it. And so you're feeling them as if they're your own and it can be very difficult. The beautiful part about it is that these different types of empaths, right? 
for looking at it as like an archetype or as a personality, they have, there are different types of empathy. And so in the book, Four Gifts, I actually go through those different types where you have um, empathy. We won't have time to cover all of them here. So Just briefly, do. like you have empathy, empathy that's linked with compassion. And so there's different types like the empath counselor, the empath advisor, the spiritual empath. And so there's different types. Yeah, well, empathy is a big one. And I have a grandchild who if somebody falls down on the playground, she is all over it. I mean, she is there holding their hand, getting them up. I mean, she has that empathy spirit that just is embodies all of her. You know, that that is her superpower, if you want. It is a superpower. I mean, I look at it as a very positive superpower. A lot of empaths really do struggle. So I get a lot of questions and referrals about empathy and people are at their wits end with it because they feel like they can't turn it off and that it's actually influencing their quality of life in a negative way. And so it becomes about learning and discerning and doing a lot of boundary work. So that's why I mentioned the evolution. Empaths really need to evolve and learn how their empathy affects them mind, body, and spirit, because it is also a spiritual phenomenon. And um, and not enough has been written about it. But I think more is coming, like you said, this book is well in advance. Um, and so I think it's more will be coming out about them, about these abilities. Okay, so the third one, what's that? Vision, um, a fascinating ability, which is uh, the way that the individual, the gifted individual, their, their, their brain, but also their mind, uses their visual perception to solve problems. That's how I, that's my caveat with the visionary. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean clairvoyance, but it also encompasses clairvoyance. So visionaries have essentially like a mind's eye where they have this spatial awareness in front of their mental field and they use that mental field to um, detect problems, solve problems, work in a very visionary creative way. Um, to solve problems. But in the book, like I, I've talked about these other abilities, it really depends on the person, how it reveals itself and how they work with it. Huge. Okay, let's go on to the fourth one. We'll just have a, a moment to talk about that one. The expressives. And so the expressives, in all the research I did, they had an aesthetic sensitivity, which was an ability to perceive beauty, harmony, interconnectedness in their environments, no matter what that environment is. And what makes their uh, gift distinctive is they have a, a strong desire to create through expression creative expression. So it's dancers, um, writers, filmmakers, literary readers, individuals who are expressing what that meaning means to them. And it typically has something to do with the human experience, why we're all here and creating meaning about that. Wow. You know, this is a bit hard for me to understand <laughs> with, with my scientific brain and with my scientific thing. But, you know, I have experienced it. I have seen it. I know this realm exists. So it's going to take others to explain it better to the world, getting the world to understand it better. And then maybe we can use these gifts as tools to help our world be a better place. I believe so. And I think this might appeal to you as a science in your scientific mind is, um, one way of looking at the express expressives and understanding it from a scientific way is maybe to see all the scientists um, who have had breakthroughs 
and how have those breakthroughs come in and through their own discipline and a lot of times it's through a creative mechanism um, you know through uh, you know for Einstein it was music and seeing music in his mind's eye and how he conceived of that was obviously very brilliant uh, but he received a lot of scientific information through a creative through a creative medium. So that's one way of looking, how do scientific breakthroughs happen for scientists? It's a very real phenomenon. So that's a that's an entree into looking at it differently, maybe. It is, and, and as I say, <laughs> when, when people are, are writing on these things and knowing these things and seeing these things, you know, it's easy to discount and say, ah, that's a bunch of malarkey, you know, it just doesn't exist that way. But But I think an educated mind should entertain that this is possible and then therefore look at it as a positive thing and how it could be that way for others. I definitely think in terms of education, we need more awareness about these different types of uh, creative aspects of the personality and how learning, you know, might be taking place in more intuitive means, which is totally being left out of the conversation. So I do think education, not just one's learning about these things, but also in the field of education, we need to do a lot more work educating educators about how giftedness looks in different, in different ways, not just traditionally and traditional standards. Well, Courtney, uh, and I, I'm going to say your last name, Courtney Marchesani, can you tell people where they can get your book and please repeat the name of your book for everybody. It was published by Hay House <clears throat> and accessible through Penguin and Random and it is for gifts of the highly sensitive. Subtitles really long <laughs> but the main title is for gifts of the highly sensitive so you can just search that in Google or any other. And, and for everybody, uh, could you spell your last name? Because that's a little difficult for some people. So it's the word marches with A-N-I on the end. That's how I break it down. M-A-R-C-H-E-S-A-N-I. Marcasani. Cool. And you can also find me if you um, are having issues with the spelling on Inspired Potentials on my website. Okay, cool. Well... Courtney, thank you very much for being here today. And thank you for coming on, even with that difficult journey you were on getting back from the conference and everything else. I, I know how traveling can be difficult when there's storms and how delays happen now and how the world has become topsy-turvy with traveling. I think I'm going to write a book about it. <laughs> and one chapter, my first chapter is going to be mystics in Arkansas. <laughs> that's, that's a whole chapter unto itself. Wow. It was an odyssey. It was like the Iliad. <laughs> but you know, I think it's proof that there is a benign spirit guiding us because he or she has developed a sense of humor so we can laugh at all these things. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. If I mean, I had to surrender. I really had to surrender through the whole trip and, and see what was being presented. Challenges and beauty and all of that. So we're all on these excursions in a way. Um, this one was just a little unexpected. <laughs> I was just planning to just go to Houston and come back, but that's not what happens. So I'm serious okay. about writing another book about it. <laughs> well, and you should, because it certainly is a journey of its and if it doesn't yeah. make a whole journey itself, it'll certainly make a part of another book that you'll yes. write. Yes, 
Yes, it will. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It's been a delightful discussion and I've enjoyed learning about your work and I will be passing it on to others. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being here today. If you like this episode, please share this podcast or radio show with others. Um, this is a podcast on my website, but this is also a nationally syndicated radio show. So please uh, share this with others. And if you like this, please follow me on all the social media channels and get the word out. Hope to talk to you soon. Bye for now. You've been listening to How to Live a Fantastic Life. Be sure and pick up a copy of Dr. Laika's book, The Secrets to Living a Fantastic Life, on Amazon.com. And you'll want to subscribe right here on this page so you don't miss a single episode. Have a fantastic day. Fantastic.